jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. Arts and culture. And now, CoverGirl. This is Under the Covers with Claire Connors on jasoncharles.net. This is Claire Connors. The following is part one of my two-part conversation with writer and editor Sharon Boone. Hello, and welcome to Under the Covers with Claire Connors. That's me, a monthly podcast about the magazine industry. Today, we're talking to an old colleague of mine from the late 90s, yikes, uh, Sharon Boone. Sharon is a magazine editor and writer who's been working in publications almost as long as I have, um, for magazines, amazing magazines, ones that, you know, are like close to so many of our hearts, McCall's, um, The Cable Guide and Total TV, Women's Day, 17, my old alma mater, um, Glamour and Essence, where she worked two stints. And she's also been an editorial consultant and freelance writer for various outlets like Weight Watchers, In Style Weddings, Dr. Oz, The Good Life, and AARP. Is that about right, Sharon? Any other magazines you want me to add to in your resume, in your long resume? <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that gives you the, the general gist of it. It's been a long, long slog through the uh, publishing world, so... Yeah, it's been a lot of titles. For most people our age, I mean, what I love about about you, Sharon, is that you're you're as tenacious as I am, and we're still doing it. We might be doing it for different, you know, aspects in publishing, but we're still doing it. And um, I'm so glad to be talking to you today. I thought of you uh, recently because of what's been going on in Condé Nast, which is a much broader conversation that we're going to have. Um, first of all, I wanted to give everyone a little bit of a background of how I came up in the magazine business. Most people know I started at 17. It was 1988, and I was hired to start booking covers for them. And my editor at the time was an ex-nun named Midge Richardson. And we had many conversations about who we could put on the cover, how, you know, who made sense. My first cover was Winona Ryder. And at one point in my conversations with her, I asked her why we did not put more uh, young women of color on the cover of Seventeen, and she she took me aside to have a private conversation with me about it, and to say that in publishing, this is 1988, it's called publishing's dirty secret that they don't put a lot of people of color on covers because they don't sell, and I was shocked, <laughs> and. Um, insulted myself because that was not my way that I was raised and my thoughts about about magazines but you know it's 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 systemic racism we it's been around forever it just has um, she also said that 17 had 10% black readers and that meant that 10% covers could be young black women I did a little rewind by the way I went back to see like what covers they had had and I wanted to ask you about um, about some of these if you remembered them yourself but Whitney Houston young young model 1981 oh yeah it wasn't a single cover for her she was paired with another girl who was not black okay 
you know, I guess that was like, you gotta, you gotta string out that 10%, I suppose. You know? I guess so. I guess um, so. I do remember, um, cause I loved, I grew up, I loved 17 magazine and it's funny. My love of magazines didn't really have a lot to do with, Oh, somebody who looks like me is on the cover because then I would hardly ever read a magazine. <laughs> that wasn't Essence, which was a staple in our house, or Jet or Ebony. Like, but for other, for mainstream magazines, you know, it would be like, that was like the rare treat. Like, oh, Beverly Johnson, who I didn't even know her name, but I knew her face because she would occasionally pop up very occasionally, like on a cover. But Whitney Houston, back then she was a model in, and Seventeen used her kind of a lot. Yeah. And I, you never knew when she was going to pop up and it was always such you, I'd be leafing through the magazine and it'd be like, oh, there she is. Oh. Like, you know, and that was so great, even though then I started to sort of like be hating on her because I, was like, I wanted to be in Seventeen and who does this Whitney Houston think she is always... Like I was like happy to see her and at the same time, like really jealous of Whitney Houston. But I do remember that, that when she did the cover, I think she was eating an ice cream cone or. Yes. Yes. Like that was, that was a big deal, you know, especially because it was a teen magazine and she was close to my age. So it was like, you know, you could picture yourself on the cover of a magazine, which before, you know, that was not something that you could even, you had to do so many mental leaps to put yourself on the cover, you know, like, oh, I like that dress. I like that setting on this cover. And then you have to imagine now, what if that person were black? Because, you know, it usually yeah. wasn't. It usually wasn't. Yeah. So with Whitney, it was like, oh, now I can just picture it's my face, you know, and yeah. I mean, my, my, I grew, I looked like, I looked like Sybil Shepherd. That sounds like such a brag. No, but Sybil was a blonde, blue eyed girl that was on the cover of Glamour. And I remember looking at Glamour and going, that looks like me. And I related to it. So did you feel like, was there an emptiness or, or like, were you, did you, were you aware that you were missing out on seeing other, other young women of color on, on magazines? Well, to be honest, like I, was young, you know, grew up in the seventies and the eighties. So okay. it was missing in a lot of places. Right. And you kind of like were used to it being missing. It's not that you didn't want it, but it was almost like you just didn't expect it. It's like, they're never going to put, you know, the black people on the covers of these magazines. So it was always like a, like such a treat to see it. And it wasn't, and then the next month it was like, oh, they're back to the same old. And it wasn't, it was just like, that's just how it is. It's sort of like, it wasn't a resignation to it. It was like, oh, you know, maybe one day they'll do more since they did it one time. Why can't they do it more times? So it was almost like, and I was very young back then. So I was like, oh, maybe next month there'll be another one. Like, and then like, oh no. So it was just anticipation and hope every month that there would be another blackface on a magazine that I loved. Right. And you grew up reading um, Ebony and Jet and Essence, right? Yes. I think I, the joke always was that if you were black in America, somehow you just got that subscription. Like 
you didn't even remember that you subscribed to it, but somehow it was always, you know, it's always there. Like my mom still has the magazines that she's kept yet and Ebony were still coming to the house, you know, and the ones that I worked at, she would get the subscriptions. And like when I left the magazine, she would be like, cancel my subscription. <laughs> you know? But you know, there were staples. So, you know, Essence and Ebony and Jet were those staples. But I loved I loved magazines and it wasn't it wasn't just them. Like I wanted I loved the looking at the advertising for magazines. I loved the glossy paper. I loved like just how articles, you know, oh, this is an article. Oh, and now they have like things on the side and little boxes. And I didn't know before I knew what a sidebar was and all those kind of things. Like it was fascinating to me. So I just always loved magazines. Did you get your degree? You went to the uh, NYU, right? Yes. And did you get your degree in journalism from there? Yeah, I got my degree in journalism. I went in as a pre-med student, but uh, organic chemistry. What? Yeah. <laughs> the great equalizer that is organic chemistry killed that dream deader than a doornail. Now, I was done. I couldn't, that class like ended me. But I was majoring in journalism anyway because I always loved to write. So that was like the easy part of school. And then all of the chemistry and the math and stuff was like the work part. So then I dropped the pre-med and just concentrated on the the journalism. And within the NYU journalism school, you could sort of choose to focus on concentration, like newspaper, broadcast. And I chose magazines. Because you love magazines. I love them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's interesting because I know that um, a lot of the editing that you've done and writing has been health related. In fact, in essence, you were the health editor, right? Yes. Yes. So that way helps. Right. I was able to sort of combine my two loves. Yeah. Writing and health. And it made, you know, that made sense. So the first job that I got out of, out of school was at McCall's magazine and that was in the health department. Okay. Editorial assistant. Right. And I know that we talked about this earlier. That was a wonderful experience for you at McCall's, right? You had an editor that was very, was she the one, is that where you had the good yeah. editor who was really kind to you and like a mentor? Right. After so many years in magazines, I, I knew then that I hit a jackpot with a boss because uh, her name is Dincy Webb and she was absolutely lovely. And I, I started to see as I moved through my career, like how important it is to have a boss who is a decent person, but who's like a champion for you. Like they hired you for a reason. And instead of hiring you to wipe their feet on you <laughs> and make themselves look good, feel better, you know, or to have like a, you know, a whipping dog. She hired me because, you know, she saw something in me. She, she thought I could be good, have a good working relationship and that I had some sort of talent. And then she let me have that talent. So there were, things that I had to learn because it was my first job. I didn't know anything about the magazine business, you know? And so it was like, okay, you're going to be doing these editorial assistant kind of things, filing and typing letters and all. But she also was very generous with her time teaching me things. 
And when you feel like you, it's okay to make mistakes because you don't know and that you're going to be gently corrected, you know, like because you're there to learn, that is wonderful. And that's the making of somebody's career. And I've seen, you know, other people who didn't have that sort of experience in their first jobs were with, were awful. And it, it is very restricting because it would, it takes a lot to, to start to get confidence in yourself. Right. And I was lucky that my first job grew my confidence. It was growing my skill and my confidence instead of me trying to like maneuver around problem areas. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, be a good boss. Yeah. Be, it's the best lesson. And, and when you have a good boss, they teach you how to be a good boss and to know how not to wipe your feet on the back of, of your subordinates as they would call us when we were up and coming and, and that. So, so Sharon, you and I met at Glamour magazine and we both had similar experiences <laughs> at Glamour for, very, for different reasons, but similar experiences. There was a new editor that came into Glamour. I think she came from Cosmo, Bonnie Fuller, and she hired me to be the entertainment editor and you were hired to be a senior editor there, correct? Yes. I yeah. came from Seventeen magazine and I thought Glamour was like the pinnacle of pinnacles of everything. It was a magazine that I loved, that I read. It was that big, thick book. It was Condé Nast. It was that building on Madison Avenue. I mean, it was like, you know, I have arrived. And boy, what a rude awakening. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. You and I walked in there the same way, our eyes wide open and then... Bam. It was just like, it was not good. Yeah. We were talking about like, it was some early sixties TV show, like that girl, like we walked in, like I might as well have had on a hat that I would have thrown up in the air and there would have been balloons and, you know, I'm doing a twirl, like that girl. <laughs> and then I was like, mm, that girl. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, more like that editor, but so we had similarly, you know, not great, um, experiences there, but do, do you remember when you first came into Condé Nast, do you remember that there were other, other black women were working at the company or did you feel like my, our friend Crystal calls it the raisin and the rice pudding. Did you feel like that when you came in or were you just so high off of being in Condé Nast that you didn't notice? I was, I was really so high off of being in Condé Nast and my previous jobs, there were never like a lot of black, other black editors where I worked in some places there would be more than others. So I, I didn't go in with any expectations at Glamour and I was just like, I'm just going to do a great job. And this is like my dream come true. And there was, I remember there was one other black editor friend of mine, Linya Floyd. All right. And I don't remember if I started working there first and then she was there or she was there before me, but it was not that much time, but it was, the staff was huge. And so there was part of me that kept saying like, maybe there's somebody else black here and I just haven't seen her yet. <laughs> like we were all on that one floor and it was, we had outgrown the space, I don't know if you remember this, like people were in the hallway, like the copy and research department was like this warren. And we were in these rooms 
sharing cubicles. And I honestly, I think I did honestly just think like, I probably haven't seen them. Like so naive. <laughs> and didn't you tell me about how at one point you heard that there was a, a young woman working at Vogue and you were like, there's some, or, or the 24th floor, there's somebody there. That's yeah, it was like, it was like this weird room. I, somebody, I can't remember, somebody said that they, that they were on the elevator and the door opened. I, and there was a black woman at Vogue on, oh my God, really? You know, <laughs> like the little crumbs that we were so satisfied with back then. I was like, and, and then it became sort of like, is there just one on every floor? Like maybe maximum two at every title. There didn't seem to be a whole lot of, of black people. So we, you know, I, you start to figure that it was sprinkled throughout, not any concentration in any one magazine, because you start asking around, it's like, is there a magazine here where there's like uh, several, right? several black people? It's like, no, there's one there, there's one there, there's two here. Well, here's the question, because I've always, I, I always worked in a union. I started in newspapers. So as working at the Newspapers Guild, we had a list of salaries of how much everyone made in the union. Everyone from the editorial system, which is what I was, I was making 7000 a year, up to the publisher is on the list of how much money people make. So you, would, you knew how, that everyone was being paid fairly. Did you ever hear any rumors about not being paid fairly compared to other editors or would that just not be a discussion had? I don't ever remember that being a discussion. I think, especially when I worked at Condé Nast because like the salary was nice. Yeah, they had, they had good salaries. So nobody was really complaining about that. And maybe in the back of your mind, you always thought like some, obviously somebody's making more than I am, but I was like happy with what I was making. So I didn't hear a whole lot of like salary comparisons actually going on with anybody. I brought, I bring it up only because this is, you know, the news that came out last week, um, Adam Rappaport and uh, Bon Appetit, uh, you know, Condé Nast, um, well-regarded magazine. So it all came out that um, things are not, <laughs> are not kosher in Bon Appetit. And, um, but one of the things that they talked about, um, that the young woman that was making the, the accusations, uh, one of the grievances listed by the young editor at uh, Bone App was that uh, people of color were working for nothing in terms of their video works. Like all of the white editors were, were making salaries of, to do videos and she wasn't, mm -hmm. and she was paid considerably less, which you know, for Condi Nast, her, her take-home salary, I think, was around $50,000. And nowadays, that's almost not a liv livable wage. I don't think it is a livable wage. Yeah, I, I mean, I can see why, well, lots of reasons why the, uh, she and other editors of color there were enraged. But, like, Condi Nast just throws money at stuff. So to think that they are lowballing people for a magazines that are making, you know, that are winning all these awards, like somebody was getting that money, like, yeah. you know, put it to the people who are doing, who are doing the work, like 50,000 at Condé Nast, even as like a base salary is, that's really low. Yeah. I think that that, because of 
what Condé Nast was and what their reputation was. And this is something that we, you and I have talked about before. There were, when I started at Condé Nast, I started to realize that there was another kind of person that works at magazines. And there were, there's a lot of them at Condé Nast. There were people that you just thought of as your coworkers. And then you start having conversations with them or overhearing conversations and their vacations were like, oh, I'm skiing in, at, in Gestad and I'm summering here. And it's like, huh, that's different from, you know, going down to visit relatives in North Carolina that I've been doing, <laughs> you know, and they're, and, and so, you know, like there's talk of trust funds and then you start, wardrobes you think oh they must have this these great clothes because they work in the fashion department and they're freebies and then you're like wait she doesn't work in the fashion department and uh, oh she must take every dime of her money of her paycheck must be going to these designer clothes and yet she's still do, going on these vacations and i was like oh wait a minute these people are rich right. <laughs> They come from rich families. And we talked about that before, too. It's like a lot of the hiring process in Condé Nast, which is, you know, naturally, societally going to be a disadvantage to young women of color, is that you were rich, you knew somebody who was rich, you were the daughter of, you know, the Swanson food, <laughs> you know, guy or whatever it was. And that was how you were, you know, introduced to working in magazines a lot. Right. And then you start to think that it seemed like the people who had more of the position and probably then more of the money were the people who needed it less, you know, and yeah. that was like, oh, they're already rich. They're, you know, an heiress or they're coming from, you know, a, a wealthy family. And now they have this title. Cause I always thought of it. I didn't try to think like somebody with my same title is making more money than I am, which probably was true. Depending. I didn't yeah. think about it like that, but it was like, they're, they have a higher title, which maybe I felt like they didn't really deserve or why didn't I have that higher title, which I knew meant like way more money that they were giving to somebody who has already had a whole bunch of money. Right. Right. Like here I am like, hey, I'm kind of on the borders of broke. Yeah. I'm like, give me, <laughs> give me that money. So I can go in summer, you know, on, in the vineyard. Not that I wanted to do that, but, you know, like that was the sort of inequity that I experienced or that I saw or that you start to think is happening mm -hmm. at Condé Nast. There were always these talks like, well, you know that Psy is – helps, you know, some executive editor, like, finance their house, you know. Buy like, a house. Right. <laughs> like, he was just buying houses for people. Like He really, well, I, I just read Tina Brown's book, and she she put, put it specifically saying that they got, they, they had to pay them back, but with zero interest. So they would be, they would be given, you know, a million dollars, because back then it would, they would be about a million dollars for an apartment or a home and then they but no interest on paying them back which i think meant they didn't pay them back right you didn't hear so much about the payback but i remember when i first heard about that it was just like what 
much. Yeah. How do I apply for this home loan? Did you ever read The Devil Wears Prada? I, I never read it. Of course, I've seen the movie. And every time it's on, I watch Devil Wears Prada. I think it's just a brilliant, a brilliant slice of what it was like to work at Condé Nast and specifically for Anna Wintour. Have you watched the film and did you get Oh, yeah. I love the movie. Yeah. And I, and I did read it. And I think when it came out, though, it was too, like, raw. Like, I had to not. I think yeah. I, re I do remember reading it maybe like a chapter and then I had to take off a few days because it, you started to remember things and it just made you mad. Like sometimes you're just too close to, to stuff to be like, it was hard to read it like, oh, this breezy book of fiction is like that's it's not funny really but it was like it's like being making fun of you know the slaughtering <laughs> something where you're just watching it going it's interesting but a little too close to home oh yeah a little too close to home it's like oh i remember that okay so speaking of books like andre beyond tally has his new book uh the chiffon trenches I just downloaded it, have not started listening to it yet, but I've been reading the reviews of it. Have you had any, you know, interaction with, have you read it? Have you, you've heard about it, obviously. I haven't read it yet. Uh, I definitely need to probably right after our talk, I think I'm going to just download it as an ebook and I'll probably just like zip right through it. Um, yeah. His perspective is really interesting because I remember when I worked at Glamour, sometimes seeing him, like you couldn't miss him. He's very oh tall. Oh my God. And he was usually- Tall, big. Yes. Uh, and I feel like every time I saw him, like in the elevator or I, for some reason I saw him a lot. I don't know if you remember this, that um, when you had petty cash receipts at Condé uh -huh. Nast, there was a window on a floor. I can't remember which floor it was to get your money back. Right. And they would just give you cash back. You have, so at Glamour, they allowed us to expense our lunches because we worked nonstop. Like in, so we had to eat lunch at our desks. And so if you took your receipts and you didn't even have to get them approved by anybody and you just collected them and you took them down to this window, stood on this line that was like the most glamorous DMV line ever because <laughs> invariably Andre Leon Talley would be like a, a few people in front of me, like in a cape. It was always a cape. Like I said, does he not, maybe I just missed him on his capeless days, but he would always be like in some fabulous outfit, like that included a cape with his receipts, just like me with my receipts. And I'm thinking like, I probably need this money more than he does. And then you push your receipts through this little window and this woman would, you know, use it adding machine and then just hand you cash money like no questions asked for whatever receipt so i my receipts were always for lunches and i'm in my imagining his were for like some fabulous lunches plus you know like a cape adjustment receipt perhaps i don't know something with some jewels maybe a lot of taxis <laughs> like we weren't going anywhere so but i'm sure he was taxi rides, taxi rides, taxi rides. And then you just turn around and you'd have like, you know, like a fistful of money. Yeah. 
you know, I did watch, I haven't read the book as we both were both planning on it immediately. <laughs> um, the other thing I did see his documentary, mm -hmm. which was, you know, it tells the story, you know, poor gay boy from the Carolinas, skinny, tall guy that, you know, made his way up the masthead by, you know, forging these friendships with these very important editors. And Tina Brown takes some credit in her Bandy Fair uh, Diaries book of helping him, I think introducing him to the interview people and helping him get his way up. I'm just curious if, I'm wondering if what he said about Anna, which we all know now, is not nice. She, you know, he, he's blaming her for a lot of things. Funnily enough, one of the things that he's mad about is that she thought he was too fat. And that was one of the reasons that she removed him from her inner circle was that she couldn't stand to see him. I don't think she was being a fattest. I think she was being more of a, I'm worried about your health angle on that. Mm -hmm. But he got so big that she just kind of moved him aside. Yeah, I, I it's, it's funny about that because he's, he's writing about that now, but I, I wonder how much of that he participated in yeah. with other people in the past because he was it's one thing to say and i was removed from the inner circle and that was deeply hurtful and i'm certain that it was but how many people were removed from the inner circle while you were still in the inner circle and what did you think and do about that you know like sometimes you ride that as like i'm the special one mm. here i am she likes me you know, Tina Brown, I've been plucked. Not that he's undeserving. Yeah. You know, yeah. man has talent. But then, you know, you start to think like, not that he was an active, necessarily an active participant in other people being sort of downgraded, denigrated. Right. From that sort of being plucked as he was. Yeah. But if you're, if you're there and you're seeing it and you know how it feels like, now he has this book out and like i said he said it's it was deeply hurtful to him but i just wonder like it's deeply hurtful to everybody and did you have that sort of kindness in view when uh, it happened to other people that you are now wanting you know to talk about your own hurt yeah because this certainly he's not the first one he can't he can't be i mean the devil wears Prada. He yeah, can't be. exactly. <laughs> For part two of my conversation with Sharon Boone, listen to episode five of Under the Covers with me, Claire Connors, on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts, and live and direct anytime on jasoncharles.net, arts and culture shows. For covers and images related to this and all of our episodes, follow us on Instagram at Under the Covers with Claire. You've been listening to Under the Covers with Claire Connors on jasoncharles.net. For more information about Claire Connors, a.k.a. Claire the Celebrity Booker, go to Claire the Celebrity Booker on Instagram. Oh, I didn't know this would be out this month. jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.